0: Hello, and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Okay, so here I am, Charles Eisenstein with Helena Norberg-Hodge, someone who I've long admired her film and book, but especially the film, Ancient Futures, that had a big influence on me. Sometimes you read a book or see a film that, that gives you the feeling of, ah, I knew it, you know? And so it was actually very affirming, and it was one of the one of the things that reminded me or or confirmed that I'm not crazy. It's so
1: nice to hear.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, really, like... It's one of those things that I think has kind of a subterranean influence. You know, it's not like, it's not like it made a big splash. It's not like it sold a million copies. It's not like, you know, it was any success in the outward sense, but I feel like it has a deep influence to the extent that it's affected me and that I'm affecting the world. It's had an influence through me. And I'm sure many, many other people like that. So
1: yeah, I'm really, it's really lovely to hear you say that. And it is true. I have heard a lot of people say that. And I actually loved what one woman said, which was, thank you so much for making me realize that our dreams were actually distant memories.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, And I think the distant memory part is that it does resonate with who we are. I'm describing a culture that was living embedded in nature. And, yeah, so... Yeah, And it probably hassled more than a million copies, but, you know, in about uh-huh. 50 languages when you add right. up all the languages. So.
0: Well, just to plunge right into the topic I wanted to talk to you about, although we could probably talk for hours on anything. When people ask me about what my book is about, I'm hesitant to say climate change, because that invokes a certain way of thinking, a certain set of responses. And frankly, most people are sick of hearing about it. So I want to engage a different narrative. And I bet you have something to say, even if I invoke a concept called carbon reductionism. Like, just right off the bat, what's, uh, what do you got to say about that?
1: Well, I love it, I love it, and I think that, as many environmentalists have noted, reductionism is at the very heart of our problems. You know, it has been this reductionist worldview that has given rise to technologies and to an economic system that has threatened to engulf and Extinguish life, we could say. You know, it's given rise to this huge monoculture and with very, very simplistic, linear, mechanistic thinking. And to the extent that we keep focusing narrowly on symptoms instead of trying to identify in a holistic way root causes, we, we really are fighting, fighting a losing battle. And I think also that the the carbon reductionism Comes out of what has now become a corporate, almost de facto government, where the think tanks, that in those think tanks, the whole idea even of carbon comes as a very neat and tidy package, as a commodity, you know, linked to the reductionist thinking.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a unitary cause and it's a measurable cause. So you can quantify it and therefore you can build financial markets around it and kind of incorporate it into the system that we have. So if you're fond of the system that we have, then it's a very promising approach. And all we got to do is think of, you know, find some alternative fuel sources and can keep civilization on track. So a lot of people, though, I think are waking up to the fact that maybe we don't want to keep civilization on track.
1: Yeah. In fact, I was so thrilled the other day. I don't know if you noticed this, probably not. In the New York Times, pretty sure it was the New York Times, there was an article saying, you know, we seem to be becoming less happy and, you know, we seem to have got something wrong.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And in the New York Times, they reported on how when the white colonizing, you know, Brits settled in in, uh, New England, I think it was, how there were all these recorded instances of in their battle with the Native Americans, how when they took prisoners, it, there was never a recorded instance of a Native wanting to stay mm-hmm. in the colonies, but many, many instances of the white people wanting to stay in the Native community. And they actually cited and quoted a situation where several women had to be tied up to be brought back to mm-hmm. their community. They didn't want to leave. and the minute they were set free in their own community, they ran back hmm. to to live in the native community. So I think we have, you know, from my experience in an ancient Tibetan culture, where I experienced a vitality and a joy and a, a peace of mind, a, a sense of self-esteem that was so deep that self wasn't an issue. And of course that came out mm-hmm. of an... The opposite of a reductionist view right. of who we are—a sense of really being interdependent with you know, interbeing. Or there's a lot mm-hmm. of language for feeling so deeply connected to others, including the plants and the animals, uh, that you experience yourself as something, as a part of something much larger than yourself, and at the same time recognize with humility that you are but a part of. Mm-hmm. So it a very um and, and it was so clear that living in that way and seeing things that way, the combination of the structures and the worldview gave rise to incredible vitality
0: and mm-hmm. joy. right and so I could easily make an argument that someone living in that way, someone who has intimate connection to place to uh, animals and plants and and the weather and the landforms and the people, the community, and knows the stories that tie us together. The story of, you know, when your grandniece fell in love. The story of when my neighbor's son fell through the ice. You know, all these stories that, that create a world. Like, I can see someone embedded in that is going to be much more secure in themselves because they're not this isolated, separate self that's dependent on money to meet his needs. But his whole life, a person like that, their whole life they see that well-being depends on relationship, and they'll have a strong identity because they're known and they know everything around them. So they won't be driven to fulfill this emptiness, to fill it up with consumer goods and the kind of temporary security of money and being in control and dominating. And And so I can see that the state of being you describe, the state of relationship, is consistent with a much more ecological or sustainable way of life. Like, I get that. And it's beautiful to me, but I want to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, good. Um, So I recently spent some time with a prominent environmentalist uh, who said, Charles, someday you're going to have to decide if you want to be relevant. And to him, relevant meant, hey, we've got a shrinking window here. And if we don't drastically cut carbon emissions very, very soon, then it won't matter if you go back to community. it localism that won't matter. it won't matter if you go back to place. It won't matter if you reform the prisons. it won't matter if you free the orcas. it won't matter if you practice regenerative agriculture. We'll, none of this will matter because we'll all be cooked. So right now, if you're a person of conscience, you have to join my campaign. <laughs> you have to you have to work right now, put everything else down, and work right now to cut carbon because there's not enough time. Maybe in a few generations we can relocalize. But right now, we have to put all of our energy into the climate, the war against climate change. What would you say to that?
1: I'd say that it is quite maddening to see that Al Gore, who's been heralded by most environmentalists as bringing this important message to the world, was a proponent of free trade as a vehicle for generating sustainable growth And the whole framing was, you nasty consumers, you better cut down on your carbon emissions, change your light bulbs, don't drive your car, don't go on holiday. There was not a word from him about the fact that these trade treaties that he was supportive of were massively transforming the whole globe, pushing businesses to either grow or die, merge or die, and... and as a consequence of these trade treaties, they were given more and more liberty to go and consume where labor was cheaper. And mm-hmm. in that competitive arena, that's what they had to do. As a consequence, we have had more and more redundant trade. In other words, countries are importing and exporting the same product, milk, water, used batteries, used plastic. Yeah. And that enormous increase in transport, is the main reason for climate change. That, in turn, is linked to a structural imposition of giant monocultures, ever larger monocultures in terms of food production, in terms of fisheries, in terms of forestry. Those monocultures, again, add massively to the problem. And yet, we don't hear about that. So for me, there is this huge information gap in terms of understanding the trade treaties that have, in a systematic way, systemically increased not only our fossil fuel consumption, but rare minerals, and uh, you know the, and as I say, the imposition right. of monoculture,
0: and, and they also set up conditions where other countries are forced to convert their economies toward exports, so that they can generate foreign exchange to pay back the development loans. And that process of converting into an export-led economy necessarily means building ports, burning fossil fuels, developing transportation infrastructure. So it's kind of the whole development paradigm has baked into the cake, increased use of fossil fuels. However, the continuing to play devil's advocate here, um, the response might be, yes, that is very unfortunate. We were wrong. But now this has already happened, and we need to convert this infrastructure to renewable energy sources and put all of our efforts into doing that.
1: One mm. of the one of the things that people really need to understand that this process of pushing businesses to mega merge, you know, ExxonMobil, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, is continuing. So one of the most efficient and effective way of halting the destruction would be the increased destruction. Would be to immediately say no to any further ratification, of deregulating finance or trade. That is a way of allowing the world to have a little bit of a pause. It is the central systemic thread, in what has, of course, over five hundred years been built on on genocide, slavery, uh, and imposing this reductionist way of seeing the world, imposing consumerism on people. But right now one of the most effective ways of giving the world a pause would be to say no further deregulation, but instead these trade treaties that are coming far hard and fast have ever nastier teeth, including clauses, ISDS clauses they call the investor state dispute settlement, where governments are signing in black and white that you can sue us if we do anything to protect the environment or to protect our right. jobs.
0: Like local, like if a locality bans fracking, yeah. they can be sued for yeah. lost profits yeah. and so on. And, if they ban then, GMOs, same yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they have been. I mean, the Swedish nuclear power company sued Germany for 3.7 billion euros because they decided to phase out nuclear after Fukushima. Right. So it's, it's an insanity. So I feel there's this two-track path that we, I think we really need to look at. There is an urgency in halting further deregulation, and it would give the world a rest. And yes, you could say that building up local economies, allowing for diversification in farming and so on, that we don't have time. But actually, what we don't have time for is to continue this madness, which is responsible for, as we said, not just increased CO2 emissions, But we're talking about the species extinction at an increased rate. And as it happens, the extinction of species is completely paralleled to the deregulation of trade and finance. Particularly, you know, some graphs have been made looking at the deregulation of finance, starting with um, removing the, the tie to the dollar. And the graph of this increased funny money in the global economy made out of thin air, parallels exactly, mirrors the extinction of species, the accelerating rate of extinction of species. So really we must answer those people with, we do not have time. We absolutely can't justify continuing with the juggernaut. But part of the key to that is that people realize that there is a central thread Whereby it's accelerating, and that that's a point that gives us an opportunity to say, Mm -hmm. right there, stop that. If we try to stop, you know, every monocultural farm or every new highway or every airport, it's much more difficult. But here we're talking about going upstream to a systemic major cause, or the major cause, I would say. Right, it's one of the the drivers. uh, Right, the
0: drivers of all of these trends. It's built into the financial system. Can I
1: also say hmm. about that, that there's also this absolutely clear structural link between that deregulation of trade and finance or the trade treaties, the so-called free trade treaties, and Mm mega-urbanization. Now, a lot of people, when you question that, they think, oh, we can't live in a city anymore. No, again, it's a question of understanding the dynamic process relationship in a man-made system, by the way. It's a lot easier to understand man-made systems than it is to understand even how our toenail functions. You know, when it comes to the living world, we are dealing with such complexity that, as you know, you know, every day we're learning more about how little we know. Mm -hmm. But we can understand the man-made structures, the link between reductionist thinking, energy technology and money being one of the primary technologies. And that system... we can understand, quite easy, because we created it.
0: I feel like a lot of the people who might be listening to this, they pretty much already get it about free trade. They're opposed to the the treaties. And certainly many environmentalists I talk to would agree with you. But they would say that merely halting new treaties isn't enough. And I would agree, like, even with the existing framework, we're doing a pretty good job of destroying the ecosphere mm. so i mean certainly like you know new treaties like TTIP and tpp are going to make it even worse but as far as the the narrative that i was uh describing earlier of it's almost too late we've got to take drastic measures to limit fossil fuels and that's the most important thing we can be doing right now um, i mean they'd be like yeah of course we got it you know free trade is a disaster and we sh- should um you know, undo even. I think that not certainly not Al Gore, but you know, like maybe Bill McKibben. You know, people who are more um, they get at least some of it. Um, I actually, I don't. I've never talked to Bill McKibben about that, although I would like to for this series. Um, but a lot of the people that I'm in conversation with, they get that part. So yeah, but see,
1: I think what they don't get, you know, what I just said about urbanization, they don't have deeply in their experience, what happens as a consequence of literally millions of people having their livelihoods destroyed on the land. Mm-hmm. And as they push into these megacities, we're talking about a mammoth increase, not just in consumerism and, a, um, and, you know, geometric rise in consumption. We're also talking about geometric rise in violence, terrorism, which yeah. further justifies the war machine. We're talking about a geometric rise in dissatisfaction and anger, which is fueling the sort of trumpeteers and the Tea Party people. So we're talking about, you know, for me, you know, we're talking about the emergency escalating and potentially justifying a type of fascism, which is sort of on the horizon, and... The problem is that we must not confuse this man made system, this techno economic system with nature itself. The system is crashing ecosystems, it's crashing societies, it's crashing destroying democracy. But sadly, the artificial finance system might live on till the last tree falls. Now that's a that's a sort of a bleak view of it, but it's for me it's a plea for people to say we're pushing almost at an open door now. If we can just build up enough momentum to put an end to these treaties and then of course simultaneously shift taxes subsidies and regulations to support place based mm-hmm. localized business and the beautiful thing is that the localized businesses are already demonstrating that they massively can reduce energy consumption, why increasing productivity and you know this is particularly clear in the local food movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, just to um, kind of illustrate what you're talking about, uh, as far as urbanization goes, you know, you start with a situation where you have uh, rural villages that are mostly self sufficient in food and mostly self sufficient in other things. And you convert them to commodity export agriculture, which necessitates large monocrop farms, industrial agriculture, and a much smaller workforce. So, the so 95% of the people who lived on that land moved to the cities where they consume a lot more fossil fuels and everything else where they need to have food transported to them from the countryside but probably because the countryside is exporting coffee or something like that from around the world so built into this, to that scenario no matter i mean yeah you can say well let's let's run that system on you know hydrogen gas made with solar panels or something like that you can try to do that but that's a huge undertaking and and compared it to simply localizing going back to the land or for starters at least removing the systemic pressures that force people away from the land you know we people tend to think that that it's a natural human impulse to want to rise above the toil of agriculture that's part of the ideology of of modernity.
1: Absolutely.
0: But, you know, I'm finding, I'm meeting a lot of people, especially young people, who are now coming to the opposite conclusion, that they want to go back to the land. But it's hard to do that. Like, they can't make a living doing that.
1: Exactly. And
0: part of the reason is the systemic pressures that you're talking about, of of the global financial system.
1: And where they do manage to go back to the land, when they have a shorter distance between the market and production, this incredible shortening of distances, or not incredible shortening, but the shortening leads to these incredible benefits because the market that's closer to production stimulates and wants diversity. So you actually have got a market tool that encourages fundamentally ecological production by encouraging diversification. And it's, it, it really is a sort of win-win magic formula. Because as you diversify, you're also making space for wildlife. As you diversify, you're reducing the need that comes out of fear of losing the entire crop. So that you reduce your dependence on chemicals. As you diversify, in any case, you don't need the same amount of chemicals. And particularly important is that we raise awareness about the fact that animals, as part of those diversified farms, can help to massively increase productivity and Help to sequester carbon. That's right. Rather than contributing as they do massively in the industrial farm. Well, and, one, here's, yeah. here's an
0: interesting. Um, uh, I'm, I was not too much of a sidetrack, but a lot of the practices um, of it could be called carbon farming. It could be called. I mean, I kind of hesitate to yeah, use that term, don't but, call it that, no. but but regenerative agriculture yeah. that seeks to rebuild soil. Yeah. A lot of those practices actually don't work very well on an industrial scale.
1: No they don't
0: there's no there's no you they. know generic formula for how to do that. They're yeah. very specific to the local microclimate to the terrain um, and to the region but even even more specifically to you know that exact farm exactly so they require someone to really become intimate with the land that they are partnering with yeah. Um, to do this and and I, one of the concerns I have about the um, carbon-centric narrative is that it makes all of this be about this abstract universal quantity this abstract universal substance that that you can quantify. And like when when you start thinking in those terms, then what naturally comes to mind, are the practices that immediately reduce carbon on a large scale in a way that we can understand directly and measure. So that would be geoengineering things, um, biofuels, large hydro, you know, nuclear power plants, things like that, that the superficial math says these are a really good thing. They're taking way more tons of carbon out of the atmosphere than these small local practices. But usually that simple math obscures more complicated impacts that end up actually making the problem worse.
1: Yeah, and I think it's good to call the impact of this techno-economic system complicated and contrast that with the complexity of nature. You know, nature is infinitely complex and and that location-specific knowledge that's required in order to, to live in it and to mm-hmm. work with it in a way that truly sustains people as well as the rest of life uh, requires that openness to not only the diversity from place to place, but the diversity even within a living plant, you know, from moment to moment, you know, mm-hmm. that openness. And that is partly, you know, less a spiritual path where you awaken to that because life becomes so rich, so much richer than we can imagine. Um and again, you know, I've seen I've seen that both in much more traditional indigenous or land based ways of living. And I'm seeing it in some of the new hotbeds of more localized ecological and spiritual ways of living, where life becomes so rich in a small town, you know, mm-hmm. like, a, like in Totnes, uh, you know, where I live in England, or Byron Bay in Australia. You know, there are these hotbeds for this new way of being and seeing the world.
0: Well, we're trying. I mean, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is another one of those hotbeds. But still, like, I mean, people have a lot of...
1: A lot of baggage.
0: <laughs> well, they have, I mean, they have a lot of, of, of ideals. Yes. But when it comes right down to it, the, the infrastructure is still pretty much requiring that you live an American lifestyle. Yes. I mean, you can go to farmer's markets for some of the things and, yeah. and shop locally and, you know, there's a, they've kept out chain stores and things like that. But it's not that different. Really, from living anywhere else, but people, yeah. p- people have a tremendous desire to live differently.
1: They do, and that desire is growing, and I must say I do I mean I do get such joy and, 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 yeah, and hope from seeing how much has been accomplished within this imprisoned mm-hmm. worldview and the infrastructure. and, I, and so I believe passionately that if people could understand the system that's imprisoning them better understand it in a holistic, truly holistic systemic way, then they could become so much more sophisticated and active in changing it. Part of that means ignoring Mm -hmm. some of the local regulations that for a long, long time have actually been there to inhibit the sort of self-reliance and Mm -hmm. ecological ways of living. Uh, Because fundamental to our growth economy is not just debt, but more fundamental than that, is removing people from the land, which is the real economy. It's essentially been a war on what was called subsistence.
0: Well, debt uh, is related to that because that's often the implement by which people are removed from the land.
1: Yeah, it's definitely part of it, but it's also more than that. You know, it's the so-called education system. It's the the infrastructure, which then also, you know, is partly through the trade deregulation and so on, allows... Monopolies to come in and deliver, you know, supposedly cheaper products, you know, destroying the market for mm-hmm. local producers. So, so as as a system, you know, debt is fundamental to it, but it's, it's bigger than that. And I I think again, if we understood that better, and I think it is about understanding and not in detail little bits of fragmented facts and figures, but understanding that more clearly, um, we could make much more headway in terms of building these systems and ways of living that we all really long for. We all long to reconnect to one another and to nature. The evidence for that is huge, once you start looking yeah. at it through those lenses.
0: I think when people understand the system, then it's much easier for them to, to see that this is just one of many alternatives. When you don't understand it, it seems like reality itself.
1: Yes, it does. It's in, yeah. And we're told constantly— that this is type of evolution, and that you know and 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 we have been brainwashed into yeah. it not seeing that we are being developed. I find that an interesting difference between people who live in the what you might call the global south, or some people call mm-hmm. third world there in many cases, at least people know, oh yeah, the World Bank and this corporation, we are being developed you know by these people in the West. This has been going on for so long. We've lost track of that, and we now think of it almost as ordained by God or evolutionary. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, many Western scholars will talk about the East or more land-based cultures as being fatalistic. Mm. And what they're talking about is their acceptance of the order of nature, the coming, you know, the waning and waxing of the moon and the realities of the cycles of life, That they accept in a profound way, but here what we're doing is the reverse. Mm -hmm. We are we belong to a a a system where the collective hubris is quite remarkable. Where we think we can control and master nature, but then we turn around and become totally fatalistic and blind, you know, to our ability to change this system which was created by human beings. So I think there's there's great hope. For a sort of awakening. I mean, it's happening piecemeal. Uh, and part of it is fueled by this longing to reconnect. And, you know, the number of people now, even in places like Bhutan and, and Ladakh, you know, and mm-hmm. West Tibet, where I were, there are two people having experienced this city drudgery and, mm-hmm. and also the house prices and the lack of meaningful work. They long to get back to something more land-based. Doesn't mean everyone wants to live in a tiny hut on an acre of land, but it does mean the desire to live in a smaller town or smaller city where it's not so difficult to get into wilderness and nature, and where there's a connection between the farms and the city and and um, where again there's huge potential for recycling you know all the organic waste and far less need for the plastics and the these are all born of the long distances and the corporate needs.
0: Yeah. So I have an idea. Um, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that you've been saying is, is something, I mean, you're really kind of saying it not to me but to the people listening because you know yeah. that I already know all this. Yeah. Yeah. So if we were just talking without this yeah. thing, yeah, like what is, what's like the real edge for you, you know?
1: The real edge, and are you talking then about the edge of difference between you and me
0: um I, not necessarily, it could be that um or it could just be you know what what's like where's your question like where is your uncertainty
1: <laughs> My uncertainty is what is the best way to reach people? what is the best strategy um My uncertainty, you see, is that, or rather let's put it this way, my certainty is that this man-made system is easier to understand than people think. If we can see it not just through industrial lenses, that's where we get caught, and where we start seeing this as either evolutionary or too big to change, but when it's seen from the lenses of living in place-based, nature-based cultures, then it just seems so silly and so absurd that we're continuing in, in this yeah. way. So my, my certainty is that if we continue in that direction, we can only you know pave the way for, you know, as I said before, you know, a type of fascism, more breakdown, and so on. So we have to understand that the natural living system And we're talking about people and nature. We need to separate in our minds that living world from this man-made world. And to me, we have to understand that the collective hubris, that we understand how a tree works, how Mm. our toenail works, how our... Or how the climate works, even. Yeah, well, how the climate works. I mean, many people... But we don't realize to what extent we buy into a type of collective hubris Mm -hmm. when we have faith in the experts and the expertise. We don't understand how much we buy into a collective hubris when we talk about the Internet as Gaia's nervous system. The Internet is not Gaia's nervous system. Gaia's nervous system is far, far, far more sophisticated. I've
0: been learning about that actually Everything from, like, mycorrhizal networks to yes. whale communication yes. that, you know, transmits information across the ocean yeah. and influences the behavior of whales hundreds of kilometers away who perform, like, really important functions in bringing nutrients up from the deep sea. And, like, yeah. we just have the foggiest yeah, inkling of how tionist. it works. Yeah. One of the one of the favorite concepts that I've come across, our friend Camilla Moreno talks about it epistemicide, yeah. that basically... Is refers to the destruction of uh, other ways of knowing yeah. that were much more in harmony with the rest of nature, yeah. um, and and contained subtle levels of understanding that we can barely even touch. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that um, we're not going to emerge from this crisis unless we draw on some of these other ways of knowing that have been marginalized. Um, I mean, and you've, you know, you were deeply immersed in some of these other ways of knowing when you lived in Ladakh. Yeah,
1: but what I would warn about there is that there's a tendency from the West, partly because of our technological upbringing, to be looking for quick fixes and Mm -hmm. magic. Uh, And what I experienced was not, not so much magic and not so much quick fixes, but this deep, deep, understanding of complexity and, and the, this deeper relational interdependent truly interdependent way of being is the key so there isn't going to be a simple formula I, I worry about you know a lot of the learning from indigenous people now will be to try to take certain rituals or to take some of the plant medicines and think that we can sort of quickly bring about mm-hmm. the consciousness raising that we need I actually would recommend that probably um, sitting with a tree and and, tr- and just comprehending and trying to get a sense of the richness and the complexity right under our noses is probably going to take us faster to where we want to be uh, than, s- than some of the ways that people are trying as it were to learn from indigenous cultures. I also think that
0: so i'm not I'm not uh, just to clarify, I'm not talking about imitating indigenous rituals.
1: No, no, I know, but no. I, I do think that a lot of a lot of unfortunately, that's a lot of what ends up happening. Uh, because in order to learn from those cultures, I mean, in a way, I would argue that we would need to live there for a very, very long time, and we're we're talking about what I experienced was that people themselves in those cultures, you know, we're not coming from a point of view of of consciously living in nature.
0: All right, so so like I might say the same thing though about the practice of, you know, sitting and really being with a tree. Yeah. Like that's yeah. When when you use that when you're enmeshed in um a, a set of relationships that includes that tree, when you use the tree's leaves or roots for medicine, yeah. yeah. When you are, you know, When you have that kind of relationship to the tree and the soil that it's in and the place that it's in and the birds that nest there and the insects and so forth, that's a very different experience than the kind of spectacle that we've made of nature here where being with a tree is something that is like this spiritual thing that's outside of life. Yeah, Like, I'm a little—I mean, I do think that it has value, um, but it's also— You know, it's just a little bit too easy to fit into life as usual.
1: I agree. I agree. I totally agree, actually. Totally agree. Um, It's just that sometimes when, I guess, you know, I'm pointing to that as opposed to going off to indigenous cultures because often, you know, the damage that's done there can Through be the far greater. tourism of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. That in a way, staying closer to home and closer to the living reality of the, you know, the earthworm and the grass under your feet may be a bigger, uh, that may be a better teacher. And yet, it's absolutely not enough, as you say, because it requires the interrelational way of being over time. And, and I also wanted to say, You know, that one of the things, before when we talked about how the dominant system operates, and you talked about people going into the city and so on, I saw in many of these cultures how when you have an economy that is clear about the fact that it depends on nature, Mm -hmm. so you know that actually what you need comes from nature, you will get automatically a decentralized demographic pattern. It is completely inefficient and can't possibly work to all huddle together in some high-rise building. So structurally, getting back to the reality that every single thing we need comes from the land, understanding also that decentralizing, even on a crowded planet, is really the only way that we can reduce our ecological footprint. So however many people we are, absolutely we have to warn people about Buying into this myth that we're too many now to go back to the land. Every step of urbanization is actually more resource intensive. Oh
0: yeah, we could and totally go is, back to the land. I mean, in the in yeah. the United States, if we just replaced the number one irrigated crop, which is lawn grass, yeah. with gardens, we could yeah. feed yeah. like 500 million yeah. people. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And that, and unfortunately, you know, maybe don't know the extent to which. Among idealistic, young ecological architects and ecologists, sustain, you know, studies of sustainable development, all of this, there's massive propaganda for urbanization. You know, And James Lovelock, a lovely man, but he's a proponent of urbanization, nuclear power, and synthetic food. Uh, so we, we really need to sort out some of these key concepts in this yeah. enclosure of our minds, I mean, I uh, feel like the the, the, wrong direction. the young
0: people that I interact with, um, they're way way past that. Yeah. 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 They're not. They're not.
1: But but I think you're not you're not interacting that much with people who are getting you know their degree in ecological architecture. You're probably interacting no. more with people who've already gone beyond that.
0: I'm interacting with people who maybe got their degree in that and became disaffected with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. But the other thing I also wanted to add to what we were saying before was that I saw very clearly in traditional cultures that as they become urbanized, it is so understandable why people become greedy. You know, suddenly there you are, everything you need, water, food, shelter, everything depends on money. Yeah. You're in a money system where you don't know what the price is going to be tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, that's enough alone to make, you know, so basically you're only, you're only be stupid. So your only security, yeah, your and only you, security you, is to, to is To, to accumulate. Hoard money. Yeah. I mean, no. you'd, you'd be rather stupid not to. Yep. And and the other thing that, you know, we really need to keep in mind is that the way that the system operates to generate greed at another level is to target children with the message that if you want the love and support of your peer group, you've got to have the latest run issues, you've got to have the latest iPad, you've to mm-hmm. have the And this is the most tragic aspect of it, is that these young children are actually desperate for belonging, for love, yeah. connection, for being seen and heard and appreciated. And now the message is, if you want that, essentially, if you want love, you have to buy. And that, that deeply, deeply, you know, evil, really, you know, insertion into a universal human need for love, and particularly in children who are very vulnerable, with the message that you need to consume to do so, uh, I don't think we see enough written about that. We don't talk enough about that. And and I think one of the reasons may be that as a parent, when the child comes to you and desperately wants to have that latest thing, it's you're in an almost impossible situation because you say, no, you're not going to have that. It's like cursing them to be outside their right. peer group at school. And so it's like saying, no, you're going to be isolated and you know not well, be one I of mean, them. Where
0: I live in Asheville, you know, people get this and that's why they go to an alternative school exactly. or they have a homeschooling yeah. co-op you know yeah. because yeah. There's, there's a big movement I mean I think yeah. the local food movement is uh kind of shoulder to shoulder with the um homeschooling homeschooling and yeah. local yeah. localized educational yeah. movement really yeah. important both
2: absolutely but it's
0: hard even if you're doing that because really what that child wants is like you said to belong yes and yeah. when we don't have I mean even you know in Asheville it's still not like it used to be where where you go outside and there's the kingdom of childhood and, and mixed age groups all yes. running around in groups, you know, and every home is their home and, and like that what they and, and to be known by generations yeah. of people, like that deep knowing not to mention to know the plants and animals and the land, like that is not available almost yeah. anywhere yeah. in the West. So, what they really want, it's like this, you're saying, it's this dilemma. Like, what they really want, I can't give.
2: Yeah, yeah. I can
0: give maybe a little bit of it. Yeah. But it's this, this, so this hunger to belong, this hunger for the real richness of relationship yeah, yeah. is just not available.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, I would urge everybody to very consciously connect with like-minded people to the greatest extent they can, that even if they manage to connect with two or three other families so that mm. as a group they exit from the stranglehold of this prison, that can help. And it can work. Yeah. I mean, I do know of cases where it worked. but this is also why we recommend this two-pronged approach where we realize that collectively on a larger scale we need to grab hold of corporate rule and bring it back to society, bring it back. You know, through the with the help of the nation state, we do need to be having, uh, you know, basically a political solution. But not going through the same old mechanisms that have been used, which are so clearly failing. We are. We must now understand that when we send individual representatives or tiny parties into the political theatre, we're not going to get anywhere. We've got to build up the movement on the outside and then come in mm-hmm. and demand change, make right. change. To change the conditions in yeah. which politics happen. Yeah, yeah.
0: I want to offer yeah. a metaphor that, that might accurately sum up the point you're making about the economic conditions underneath, um, you know, carbon emissions and climate change and the futility of addressing them um, primarily on the superficial level. It's like, It's like, imagine like we're on a tread, like a... Conveyor belt to hell, yeah. or over a cliff, yeah. and the conveyor belt—the conveyor belt's going faster and faster, and and the conveyor belt is emissions. So the kind of mainstream carbon reductionistic or carbon centric viewpoint yeah. is basically telling us turn around on that treadmill and run as fast as you can the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. But what you're saying is let's stop the treadmill.
1: Yeah,
0: let's stop the conveyor belt. Yeah,
1: let's stop the conveyor belt. Yeah, and belt. Yeah. Yeah. and. and you know, in stopping the conveyor belt, we won't have solved everything. But I, you know, the the amount of understanding and and movement that it will we will require to do that, I think, could grow very rapidly. But it needs to be much, much bigger. Bigger also in terms of mindset. We need this big picture activism, because right now there is a focus on individual trade treaties. Uh-huh. We need to understand that these trade treaties, whether bilateral or multilateral. You know, they all need to be halted right now. And And a lot of the
0: critique of the trade treaties is very specific to... to, to
1: Specific countries, specific treaties.
0: Or it's like, you know, it's this provision of it that's to be criticized and that. There's not really a holistic... No, no. Yeah. Except on the far left, really, a holistic Uh, critique.
1: I don't even see it on the far left because I think the really genuinely holistic critique needs to include... The understanding and the deep understanding of eco-literacy meaning ecological mm-hmm. literacy as well as economic mm-hmm. literacy so once we really wake up to this truth which we all know that everything we use depends on the land but once we really start thinking about well what would an economic system look like that keeps in mind that we are dependent on natural resources and i do want to say there that to the extent that the localization movement has succeeded in getting community groups involved in harvesting, you know, wood for buildings and local food. well. So to the extent that they start seeing where their basic needs are met and actually establish that experiential knowledge, you see how the feedback loops in the real world uh-huh. force you into more holistic, more benign, uh-huh. more sensible thinking. Because even... Even if you're tremendously greedy, you know you're not going to have a a town deciding, oh, let's increase our measure of progress by cutting down every tree around around the town. It just wouldn't happen. Right. It's the distances that have allowed for this madness, and so in that sense, you know, localizing economic activity is absolutely essential, and it's demonstrating not only that you start getting you know some wisdom into your relationship to nature, but Again and again, we're seeing how, when people become interdependent in the local economy, how the right and left can disappear, mm-hmm. prejudices disappear. You know, when when you're in this abstract, distant system, herding into a city, you know, these people with a different skin color coming in yeah. and, and competing with you for jobs.
0: Yeah, it generates increasing strike. terrible. Strike I don't know if she was basically. making that point pretty well yesterday. Yeah, did you know? she? Yeah, she, she was saying, you know, you talk about Syria and the causes of terrorism and stuff. She said it's the, you know, neoliberal policies that forced a million people off the land. Right. And then all of a sudden you have, uh, have uh, contention for limited resources that didn't exist before. Exactly, you know?
1: exactly. Yeah. And I witnessed that so, so firsthand, you know. The, and what happens also is that you get this intense friction between local groups that have lived side by side for generations. And then, of course, even worse prejudice against outsiders that come in. Mm-hmm. I also do think it's important to stress that, in a very profound way, it's not about racism. Because I've seen, you know, the Irish furious at the Americans coming in and buying up their villages. I've mm-hmm. seen uh, people in Wales burning the houses of Londoners who moved into Wales to buy country homes. Nothing to do with race. It's about the integrity of a community and its ability to have control over its life and to have access to its own resources and not, you know, outsiders coming in to to exploit them. And, of course, the biggest outsiders of all are invisible because they're so distant, you know, particularly the distant banks, but the Mm -hmm. distant corporations with these long, invisible hands. All
0: right. Well, maybe let's finish with one more little thing, just to return to the original question. So I'm imagining my uh, inner climate activists saying, yeah, 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 this is all really good. Yeah. And we should do all of this. I agree with every word, but we don't have time. So what we need to do, focus on right now, is a massive carbon tax to to give us at least a window of opportunity to implement all of the things you're talking about.
1: Well, I, you know, if we had control over our own countries and over our own regions, It might not be a bad idea to tax carbon, but in the current situation, all of this is feeding right into giving more power to global corporations who are wasting fossil fuels on a massive scale, who are funding through these quadrillions that are being created out of thin air. They don't care how much it costs to do fracking or to excavate in in Alaska or wherever because it's about control. It's not uh-huh. about what's actually efficient or economical. So as long as we have that, carbon taxes are a nonsense, and they're only going to destroy relatively small place-based businesses. So beware of any of this carbon uh, reductionism.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, in, if we look at it in a holistic, systemic way, and if you look at taking control, genuinely control, we would want incentives to encourage... The use of more renewable energy, and uh, you know, a tax on fossil fuels, you know, that really also goes into helping to develop some renewables might be okay, because I think I would certainly want to make it clear to you as well as to any audience mm-hmm. that I think it's really important that we consider the people who are trapped in the urban realities today, who are desperate to get a job and you know, if we sound as though we're saying, well, we all need to go back to live in the village and farm, we're simply not going to get enough people doing what needs to be done to build up a movement, and, you know, we're not going to be encouraging enough people to actually look at a fundamental shift in direction. So there's a, that's, that's, in terms of my doubts,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I have such a big doubts about what is the best strategy, what would be the best conversation to reach people, and I, I wanted also to say, maybe I'll just quickly say it here now too. It, it related to all of this, is the understanding that language itself is part of our problem. That you know, as you go deeper, and as you go into much more profound understanding of how we need to live, then we'll realize that we have to treat language very differently from the way we've been treating it in modernity. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to me that in the ancient Tibetan language that I speak, you cannot speak so shallowly and simplistically as we do. Above all, what it shows is that in a sensible, genuinely ecological society, you respect experiential knowledge, and you question second-hand knowledge. Uh-huh. We have inversed that in modernity, which is you know, profound right. and very dangerous change. So you have affixes. So if you're talking about you know, this scarf of mine has got red and blue in it, and uh-huh. I'm looking at it right now, your verb will show that this is something you have experienced and that actually it happens to be right now in your uh-huh. view. You can't sit and say, you know, in China it is like this. It's just not possible. Wow. You'd have to be saying, in China it is said that. It may be like that. And and so... So the language
0: the, has relationality embedded rel- into it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah and particularly this relationality that understands and respects experiential knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're training ourselves at schools and universities is to be so distrustful of experience, it's dismissed as anecdotal, it's right. dismissed it's supposed as supposed to strip anecdotal.
0: subjectivity yeah, from, from complete, your writing. And,
1: yeah. and, you know, anything you write down, you know, if someone else didn't say it in a book, you know, if it isn't sort of third-hand knowledge, it's not worth anything. Mm-hmm. But um, what, I, what I want to come back to having said that, is that this kind of discussion about language and so on is not going to help us build a movement with those people who are struggling just now to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, hoping their child may have a chance of finding a livelihood. But I think that the big holistic picture of the disastrous effects of corporate rule through an avenue of trade treaties, through a conveyor belt of trade treaties, That is an image and a vision I think we could get a lot of people behind trying Mm -hmm. to stop. And I do believe that from left to right, the idea that we would be looking at an open, globalized, if you like, localization, where through international collaboration and support, we want to support the strengthening of local economies worldwide. You know, strengthening local economies worldwide, I think is something that people would get behind. And so I don't, you know, what I feel is that I may be talking to the wrong audiences all the time <laughs> because I think that, you know, in a certain way, you know, I'd like to talk to some of the people who are likely to vote for Trump or the people who, who have joined the Tea Party who, you know, might actually really respond to this idea that we want to move from corporate rule
0: to community rule. I think that Donald Trump is actually tapping into a lot of that sentiment, you know, just because of his anti establishment image. You know, that's what people are voting for. It's it's not that they're necessarily racists, it's that they think that the normality that's been presented to them is no is is intolerable. Yeah. And and they yeah. will they you know, they feel disaffected, they feel alienated.
1: Yeah and i do think it's very important to realize that the fact that hillary also had to talk about trade treaties is a sign of people power yeah. and we should realize you know, that if we keep pushing in that direction we can have leaders that are not madmen like trump you know not leaders who're not going around saying that children should carry guns in school and that they'll be right. safer that way you know, that is extremely frightening and and i i th- I really think that there is, you know, the potential for this sort of aha-experience, and that consciousness in this way can expand very rapidly. But, but as I keep saying, I think we need this two-track thing. We need to be looking at the dominant system to understand its contours, and understand how we may be contributing to it ourselves, and how much we're weakening our efforts, to try to strike an alternative path and an alternative lifestyle if we don't if we don't understand the dominant system better and i think i'm so thrilled about your book about climate because i see you know the dominant climate debate you know just taking masses of people in the wrong direction mm-hmm. supporting you know absolutely mad and basically corporate pseudo solutions
0: right i mean to answer my own question about you know the carbon tax and stuff Like I'm pretty sure that something like that is going to happen, that we are going to massively reduce carbon emissions, and that everything will continue to get worse because that's just such a superficial symptom of a much deeper problem.
1: Well, I worry that if we don't have more eco-literacy, both ecological and economic, I worry that we won't even actually be reducing carbon. I worry that what's going to happen is, as it does with most of these things, that individuals and smaller businesses, national businesses even, will be crippled and become, you know, go, go extinct as the giants continue not only to pump out more and more uh, CO2, but continue with massive excavations and, yeah. and rolling back environmental protection that's been built up, you know, over the last 30 years. You know, removing any of the protections, clear-cutting more. So we're talking about a giant, mm-hmm. monstrous uh, juggernaut. And, and yet, it's all built on thin air. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're keeping it in place by being yep. ignorant of it.
0: This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening and I'll be with you again next time.